Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 7, Episode 11. What we see in some of these conversations uh, that come up regularly is that a player might be really fast on the ice and really underdeveloped in their speed and power qualities off the ice. So to me, that may be a player that you really want to take a strong look at. Because if they have a four-cylinder engine and they're beating eight-cylinder engines in races, then you increase the size of the engine, it's likely that they're going to continue to, to scale up in a positive direction. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. This is the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we're joined by Kevin Neal, the head performance coach of the Boston Bruins. Got to catch up with Kevin at the recent NHL Draft Combine in Buffalo, New York, and excited to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks, Eric. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to share that we have a new partnership with the NSCA and SCAF. The Strength and Conditioning Association of Professional Hockey, and we just really kicked this thing off at our combine meetings, and we're talking to all the coaches about just being collaborative with the NSCA around certification, around education, and it really speaks to the mission of the NSCA of supporting all strength and conditioning coaches, but strength and conditioning coaches at the professional level to really contribute a leadership voice to the field as a whole. So you're a part of that. You're the Eastern Conference rep with SCAF, and we can dive into some of those topics today. Want to kick this thing off in usual podcast fashion. Tell us about your role with the Bruins and a little bit about your path in the field. Sure. I uh, So for the Bruins, I'm the head performance coach. Our department uh, broadly oversees all, all of the in-season and off-season training, all the you know remote program design. I know we were talking a little bit about some of the challenges in the off-season uh, before we jumped on the call here, but um, the pr- program design and delivery for players that are out of town in the off-season. But um, during the season, in addition to the uh, you know design and implementation of the training program, um, we also oversee all of our sports science initiatives. So any of our uh, on-ice workload monitoring, our, you know, kind of built-in testing process uh, throughout the year. Um, and then also the, you know, kind of the player recovery side of things as well. And and try to aggregate that information and and provide feedback to the coaching staff and to the medical staff whenever, uh, whenever it's appropriate. So um, I am entering my sixth year in Boston within that role. Prior to that, I spent two years as an assistant strength and conditioning coach with the San Jose Sharks under Mike Potenza, who I know was a mutual friend of ours. Um, and I ended up in San Jose after spending seven years as the director of a private uh, sports training facility in New Jersey, five of which I was also fortunate to be a strength and conditioning coach with USA Hockey's uh, women's Olympic team. So um, that's kind of the high level overview of, of how I got to Boston. Was hockey on your, uh, radar to start? Is that what you were working towards? I, I, you mentioned the private sector in there. Uh, what was your thought process around that? Yeah, it's a good question. I, so 
I, when I was, I want to say 13 or 14 years old, had an opportunity to play for a hockey coach that really put a, a high emphasis on off ice training. And that was the first time, you know, I had lifted some weights with my older brother in the basement, you know, probably like a lot of kids, but this, that was really my first exposure to purposeful off ice training with the intent of, uh, of improving sport performance. And, you know, in parallel with that, um, you know, that coach also ran a lot of power skating clinics and some skill development clinics throughout the year and especially in the off season. And um, I was fortunate to be able to help out with those too. And I just fell in love at an early age with the idea that you can put in extra work to improve and develop. So I, I've always, you know, since being exposed to the game of ice hockey, that's uh, it, it's always been a sport that I've, I've loved and I've been passionate about. And, you know, that opportunity to kind of help out with work off the ice and on the ice and see the impact that it had on me personally. And then some of my teammates and some of the other people um, that were going through those camps, I, I knew that I wanted to pursue a career in hockey development in some capacity. And, you know, I wasn't sure uh, certainly at that stage and and even as late as in grad school, I wasn't sure if that would be pursuing a coaching role, you know, more of a kind of skill development, um, supplementary consultant role, uh, or more of the off ice and performance uh, training side of things. So um, I had a little bit of a fork in the road moment. So I went to school at the University of Delaware and Played there for four years and um, had an opportunity. Uh, I went to grad school at UMass Amherst when I finished Delaware. And I had an opportunity after my first year at UMass to go back to Delaware and essentially run some some clinics and camps with a friend of mine that was a hockey director at a local rink. And we had a bunch of things set up that um, I was pretty excited about at the time. And, um, you know, I I... Throughout my first year, was introduced to Eric Cressy, um, applied for an internship at his facility and had an opportunity uh, to go do that during that same summer. So, you know, ultimately, I opted to take a functional anatomy class that was part of BU's DPT program. And I interned with Eric that summer instead of going back to Delaware and running the uh, running hockey clinics and camps. And, um, you know, from that point forward, it's it's been uh, the focus has been entirely on the off ice development side of things, but hockey's always been my, you know, my, my passion and the sport that I'm most interested in. So um, it's just fortunate. I've worked, you know, in the private sector, you work with athletes in all sports and um, I really enjoyed the diversity and the challenges in, in that. But, um, you know, I, I was certainly interested in getting back into a team setting and working in ice hockey. In joining your group at the NHL draft combine, I really got to see, you guys in action. I, it was, it was interesting because I go to a few of these different combines, but the involvement of strength and performance coaches, uh, at the testing stations, uh, collaborating with the scouting department, it was, uh, very front and center, you know, and I, I thought that was pretty innovative approach to, uh, putting the performance experts with the performance tests and getting the most out of these athletes who are uh, at the beginning of the pipeline into professional hockey. Share a little bit about that evolution. Uh, it's it, it really isn't like that in every professional sport, but I thought you guys were really onto something. 
Yeah, I, I think there's some uh, unique considerations with the NHL combine that are important to recognize. One is that all the players are, you know, with some rare exceptions, all the players are 18 years old. Um, as a general statement, those players will not be transitioning into an NHL roster for three to five years after the combine. So very different from the NFL draft where the, the entry age is quite a bit older. The stage of development is much different. Um, and then the transition plan from the combine into professional sport is immediate, where for us, there's several years uh, of a buffer zone built in there. The other thing that's unique is is the timing of when that combine falls relative to the end of the season for some players. So um, every year there are players that arrive at the combine having played a game within a week of them coming. So those players, you can imagine, you know, they obviously have gone on a long playoff run as you go through the playoff uh, process. The the focus is on, you know, being prepared and recovered to play. Uh, play at, at your best the next game so the the shift on you know off ice development and preparing for a potential combine battery takes a back seat to making sure that you're ready to play the next game as it should in contrast we have players that maybe have not played a game in three months so there's a lot of context <laughs> that needs to be considered when interpreting the test results of the players that are at the combine. And, you know, I, I think uh, the, the combine across sports has had a, a little bit of a reputation as being a, or with the goal being a predictor of future success, but then also as a determinant of draft position. And, you know, there are countless examples within the NFL specifically where, you know, every year there's somebody that really shines at, at the combine in one or more tests. And then, you know, you fast forward five years and they don't really pan out as an NFL player. And I think despite that reality, people are still looking for that connection that if somebody is better at a test that they should be better at their sport. And there's so much, I think in all sports and in hockey, certainly no exception. There's so much that determines what will make a player successful or not, that it's really challenging to say, you know, this one test or these battery of tests are going to guarantee that a player will be uh, pre prepared. And, you know, an easy example of that is speed of execution on the ice is not just speed of movement. It's speed of recognition, speed of processing, speed of decision-making, ultimately the ability to then execute a skill appropriately in that moment. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity within that process, which is uh, I think still oversimplified for somebody to be exceptional in one area that may allow them to be successful, even if they don't necessarily have the fastest skating ability. So all of that said, you know, I think that there has been, um, to the credit of, you know, NHL organizations, I think there has been an increased dialogue between the uh, management and scouting staffs with the performance coaches around the league on what of the combine testing battery of, of what measures are maybe most important to what that organization is, is looking for in a potential prospect. And then, what does that say about the player within the context of 
of their age, of their physical maturation, of uh, what you can find out through the interview process or what information you're aware of from the program that they come from as far as their off-ice training background. Um, and then ultimately, you know, are they at a point from a physical standpoint where in one or more qualities where they are NHL ready now, which is rare for an 18-year-old, and if not, is there a reason for optimism that there's enough of a growth window there that they could reach that point? So, you know, it's a little counterintuitive, but if somebody is physically mature and they test slightly above average in all the tests across the board, and they come from a program that puts a really strong emphasis on off-ice training and, and the, you know, quote-unquote strength and conditioning side of things, then you might look at that and say, this is a player that is likely closer to their ceiling from a physical development standpoint. So that in conjunction with what they look like on the ice. So if that player at the level that they're currently playing struggles to keep up or isn't strong on pucks or uh, from a conditioning standpoint falls off over the course of a game, um, there might be some reason for concern in the upside of that player. Whereas a player that, and you see this with uh, with the Europeans traditionally, that there's not as much of a strength and conditioning emphasis at younger ages as there is certainly in the U.S., but really in, in North America more broadly, where they may really have not been exposed to, you know, traditional speed, power, and strength training. You know, some of those kids are playing other sports and then just riding bikes in the offseason. And they come in, if they're at the exact same level, you know, slightly above average in a lot of those categories, how you would interpret the upside is completely different. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think the, the draft process should uh, start with how the player looks on the ice. And, you know, that should be weighed uh, the most heavily. And then in situations where there's kind of a 50-50 battle between you know, a 50-50 toss-up between a couple potential picks that, you know, there's there's some things you like, there's some things you don't, there's uh, areas for growth on the ice. And, you know, that's where I think supplementing that with some of the information from the combine testing process can be helpful. But more than anything, Eric, I think it's just an opportunity to get a cross-section of what that player's makeup is. And, you know, I, I think organizations are are making a pretty significant investment in a player from a development resource standpoint, and then even financially in entry-level contracts, if they sign the player, that, you know, I, I come back to the idea, like, would you rather not know? You know, would you rather not know where they are at that stage? It's not a matter of saying, you know, your vertical jump is two inches higher than the next guy. So you're a better hockey player. It's we've scouted how you are as hockey players. There's, you know, a database of, of central scouting rankings of all the players. There's a, a clearer picture on that. So what are the underlying physical capacities that may explain some of the things that we see on the ice And what we see in some of these conversations uh, that come up regularly is that a player might be really fast on the ice and really underdeveloped in their speed and power qualities off the ice. So 
to me, that may be a player that you really want to take a strong look at. Because if they have a four-cylinder engine and they're beating eight-cylinder engines in races, then you increase the size of the engine. It's likely that they're going to continue to, to scale up in a positive direction. So um, those are some of the things that I, I think our profession's voice has become louder in communicating and contextualizing within the the organization as a whole, which is obviously trying to aggregate information from uh, from different different vantage points to make the best decision on a player. I love the depth that you covered that it, you know, highlights that as performance coaches, we do seek windows of trainability in our, in athletes that come into our, our training system. And there are opportunities to train players regardless of where they come in, but from a scouting and predictability standpoint, it's not black and white in terms of a higher score in a vertical jump test does not necessarily mean the best athlete or strength or power in four or five years from now, uh, especially in a sport like hockey where you're on the ice. And I think one thing that's interesting is when, when you're saying speed and power, and then I go to the combine and it's the there's an agility test and there's a jump test and a bench press and a, in a wind gate, these are dry land assessments. I want to ask you, you know, specific to hockey, is there a bigger divide or disconnect between speed, strength, and power as we typically view it in a dry land environment to what you see on the ice? If you were to test an athlete for, uh, skating speed and those those sort of metrics is it a is it a bigger gap there or are they pretty relatable um i i think where there's a fairly strong connection is that if players develop those qualities off the ice they will translate into improvements on the ice where the uh where the transfer might get a little cloudier is <laughs> in the current kind of cross-sectional you're comparing two players this player is stronger off the ice are they also stronger on the ice and you know as an example one of the first pro players that i ever worked with uh off the ice was not traditionally strong you know i think compared to a lot of our college players was below average in in lower body and upper body strength regardless of how you know what movement we use to assess that and on the ice, his ability to protect the puck and give and withstand contact was a real strong point of his game. And the other uh, maybe illustrative example is that a lot of uh, there are a lot of examples that I can think back on across my career where a player off the ice is not fast, meaning, you know, maybe a 10 yard or 20 yard acceleration is below their peer group uh vertical jump is below their peer group and they're the fastest player one of the fastest players on the ice and there are some uh unique physical characteristics characteristics of skating um you know it's a little bit more of a concentric dominant pushing motion um it's obviously heavily uh biased in the frontal plane compared to some of the traditional testing um, so those that, you know, and just the, the efficiency of, you know, how good of a skater is a player 
can have a significant impact on how they're able to generate speed on the ice, where a lot of those off-ice tests have their own skill component. So, you know, if you're doing a, especially with these shorter distance sprint tests, the, you know, 10 yards and 20 yards, that pattern in sprinting, the first few steps in off-ice acceleration has the most direct translation into on-ice skating, but it's still very different. And even within that, getting, you know, the variability in a 10-yard sprint time related to the quality of the start and the efficiency of the start is extremely high. So, you know, how much time then do you spend with the player who plays their sport in a different medium on just maximizing the sprint start of however, you know, a team or an organization or a group is testing that 10-yard sprint? And if you're looking at, you know, an off-ice and an on-ice acceleration test, if a player's on-ice acceleration test is good, that's what you want. If their off-ice is not, then you're looking for, you know, potential reasons for why that may be. And more importantly, you're just looking for that player to make incremental continuous progress in that quality. And that will still transfer even if they're, you know, their two-point start on a 10-yard sprint test isn't perfect. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's, uh, there are a lot of outliers if you're expecting the performance in an off ice test to translate directly into on ice performance. But I still think that the, the process is very useful, not just in, you know, being able to track progress and certain qualities that might be of interest to a player's game, but also in attempting to explain why something may be good or not. So, you know, somebody's slow on the ice and they're slow off the ice. Well, it's easier to get off ice testing data than it is on ice. So now you have a KPI for that player that you can track over time and emphasize as part of their training process to make sure that they're making progress in the right direction. Um, you know, if somebody is really good on the ice and not good off the ice, you know, there's, is it a technique issue? Is it a, uh, or is there some, some, fundamental capacity off the ice that you know again should be a point of emphasis in the in the training process so um you know as a diagnostic process i think it can be helpful you just can't make assumptions that what you're seeing off the ice is what you're going to see on the ice yeah i think that's really interesting you can uh you always have to balance your thinking of performance in the dry land area versus on the ice and uh I think of that from a, you know, almost through a scouting lens when you're looking at how a player's performing on the ice during a game or during a practice, but that mentality is really valuable as a performance coach, uh, just to be able to connect the dots to what you're doing in the weight room or during conditioning sessions. Kevin, I want to ask about um, SCAF. You guys as a professional group have gotten more organized over the past three, four years coming together as a group of professional hockey strength and performance coaches. And it's, uh, it's not just the NHL, it's the AHL and the developmental levels. And it's been really exciting to get to know how your developmental systems work. And you have, what I'm learning is that the majority of the coaches who I met are, are CSCS professionals. And so up to standard in terms of where the where the field is at. 
And there's a number of teams, I'd say most teams probably have assistant performance coaches at the NHL level. And we, and we see dedicated staff uh, at the AHL as well. So tell us about the work of SCAF, what you guys are working to accomplish and uh, give us a little uh, insight into that. Sure. So I, I think the, uh, the positions and in infrastructure that you outlined are relatively new in the evolution of, of uh, you know, performance enhancement in professional hockey. So, you know, you go back 20 years or so and the head athletic trainer may have had some exposure to some strength and conditioning principles or their background, and they would kind of oversee some of that. And then some teams started to hire strength and conditioning coaches. Um, you know, at this stage, almost none had anybody overseeing the AHL level. Um, there were no assistants at this time either. And I think uh, two things have kind of happened in parallel. One is that <laughs> there's been an increased recognition for the, the importance of physical preparation for the sport and then the opportunity for a competitive advantage by having players that are better prepared from a physical standpoint. Um, that has led to the expansion of staff so you know you fast forward a little bit you're starting to see teams add assistance um you know I, I also think as part of that you're seeing the emphasis that's placed on getting players physically ready from uh, a developmental perspective as well um you know i've i've been fortunate i in the private sector we would work with and uh and test youth hockey organizations that you know, you have players at all these different age groups and you have players that are competing at different levels and, um, you know, pretty consistently, as you would expect, you would see significant differences in the physical testing numbers of players as the levels increase, both in terms of age and in terms of ability. And, you know, I, I, uh, you see similar things with our women's national program where, you go from the U18 to the over 18 players, even the, you know, we had a, a team that would play a, a round robin with Canada. That was a U22 team. Um, and then looking at the senior national team, there are, there's incremental progress across different physical testing variables in those groups. And we see the same thing at our level that when you're looking at prospects versus AHL versus NHL players, there are differences in the physical makeups of the players, whether that's just in size, whether that's in markers of strength, um, you know, different markers of power of, of conditioning. So there's some real value in helping to scale the players physical development up and preparing them to compete at the next level. So, you know, with increased recognition there, I think you're starting to see some staffs expand in size. And in parallel with that, and I, I think this is true uh, across all, all sports and all levels, that there's um, there is a larger integration of technology, and also more responsibilities are falling under the umbrella of strength and conditioning and and performance. So, you know, that may include things like you know, oversight of nutrition and supplementation uh, may include, you know, quote unquote, sports science. So, you know, the the within sport monitoring process, recovery monitoring, some of the things that I mentioned earlier, and that is increasing the workload on the professionals in those positions. So, 
you know, I think as there has been more of a spotlight placed on the potential benefit and competitive advantage of having quality people on the staff, there's also been more responsibilities that have been funneled under that umbrella. So, you know, it's a long-winded way of saying that has led now to what you described, which is almost every team across the league has a head and an assistant at a minimum, you know, and the way that the rest of the the staff at the NHL level is constructed depends on the organization. Some people have performance directors. Some people have uh, sports scientists. Some people have nutritionists. Um, a lot of times there's a lot of shared responsibility, regardless of the titles. It's, you know, let's get a couple people into these roles and then divvy up based on, um, you know, what needs to be accomplished, what that individual's primary skill sets are, and just make sure that we're getting everything done that we need to. Um, and every AHL team now has a strength and conditioning coach. So with SCAF, um, which, you know, I, I promise I'll, I'll get to what you actually asked here is, you know, the as rapidly as that has evolved within the organizations, we really need to have a, a centralized voice in communicating to the league what some of our needs are, um, you know, providing feedback on things like the NHL combine testing process, which has evolved a lot in the last 10 years and will continue to moving forward. Um, and, and really just have an open line of communication on back and forth with the league on the way that our field is evolving, how that can be helpful to the players and to the organizations. And, you know, at the same time, I think just making sure that uh, they have a clear understanding of what we're attempting to do and our uh, our goals with some of the things that we're integrating into the the preparation process. And then also to hear from the league what some of the concerns may be as they, you know, kind of navigate some of the the liability concerns with players, some of the concerns from the players association, maybe on, you know, using information to support or against a player in contract negotiations, for example. So um, the primary goal of SCAF was really to just create a centralized organization. So the league had a clear group to communicate with. And then, um, you know, obviously that's a two-way street that we want to make sure that that our needs and our voices are being heard to the league as well. These are groups that advocate for strength and conditioning that advocate for the values of the NSCA and what we believe in. And just, you know, I want, I want everyone to know in the SCAF group that you have our support from the NSCA. It's really valuable to, to have these relationships, the, these partnerships, because it uh, provides a great example of how we can make progress in terms of uh, creating dedicated strength and conditioning coach roles. Like you mentioned, they haven't always existed. A lot of time and effort goes into advocating for the value of a performance coach for a strength and conditioning coach. In uh, an interesting perspective, you bring up on the staffs growing in size. And this has happened across NCAA, all professional sports. I notice you have not only a CSCS and an RSCC star D, but you have your CPSS and you're probably one of the early adopters for the um, sports science certification that we have. And it really speaks to what you were mentioning, just the, the more analytical mindset that uh, strength and conditioning coaches 
have today. We've always had testing. We've always had our principles and core values, uh, but it is being delivered in a more technological way. And you really uh, highlighted some of those aspects and how they uh, relate across the NHL. I thought that, I think that's really great. Culture of hockey. You mentioned, uh, I thought this was really interesting when you mentioned uh, international players maybe don't have as much of a training background. And that's, that's just generalizing. Whereas in the U S there's a heavy strength and conditioning emphasis. What, what's your approach in working with an athlete? You know, they're, they're obviously a great hockey player. They come into your program and you're getting them at the NHL level, and maybe they just don't have a great foundation. It's a little counterintuitive for us because I think sometimes we think of great athletes are going to have great effort and they're going to, they're going to be great at all the performance aspects and squats and all the things we love to do, but that's not always the case. How do you work through those? Yeah, I think there are, uh, you know, two, two things come to mind immediately. One is everybody's backgrounds are going to be different. Um, and, you know, you think back to kind of evidence-based practice models. And, you know, I think traditionally that's kind of viewed as what does the research say? We should just do that. And, you know, really it's, it's more of a three-pronged approach of, of marrying what, what literature and research-based evidence says, along with the coach's experience, along with the, the values and preferences of the athlete. So, you know, I, I think uh, there are certain players based on their background have affinity for certain training methods or certain specific exercises. So in my setting, you know, I try to look at the program delivery process more from what is the intended uh, neural or physiological outcome of the training stress that I want to impart on that day. And then within that, if there are really strong preferences for one exercise or one method over another, as long as they fit within the bucket of what I want to accomplish, then there's a little, and it's not going to hurt them based on some of our movement testing and their injury history and conversations with the medical staff, then we maintain some flexibility in in exercise selection and some of those things to make sure that, you know, we're, we're getting what we want out of the training process on a particular day, but the athlete then also has a voice in that process and an increased level of buy-in in the training process in general, because they're able to kind of tie in some of the things that they feel strongly will benefit their performance. So um, that's one thing I think from recognizing that, you know, we have, I've had players as old as 42, I think that I've worked with at the NHL level um, and then as young as 18. So, you know, everybody's at a different stage of their career in addition to different backgrounds as they're entering their career. So I really try to look at the, uh, not just from a performance testing standpoint, but, you know, also tying in feedback from the coach, from our front office, from the players themselves, importantly, um, you know, from communication with the players about, some lifestyle habits and some other things that maybe are supporting their, their ability to recover and their readiness on any given day. And you take all the factors that can impact performance 
and I try to look at that is where, where can we best help this player? So, you know, there's a player that's underdeveloped that doesn't have a strong training background. When they first come, we're just trying to instill positive fundamental habits, making sure that they're preparing appropriately before they go on the ice, make sure that they're training consistently in doing, you know, basic things, but doing them with the technique that we feel is safest and is going to have the best transfer to their sport, um, using methods that then are going to also help establish what uh, some progress in whatever their primary training goals are. So, you know, a player that's undersized maybe needs to put on a little bit of weight and work on getting stronger. A player that um, is physically appropriately developed, whether that's because of their training background or not, you know, maybe their, you know, quote unquote, first step quickness or their speed or, you know, their, uh, their within game endurance, maybe those things are more pressing primary goals. So we'll try to dial up a little bit more work in those areas while still obviously keeping the big picture in mind and making sure that we're, we're still touching all of the other qualities that are important for the sport. So those are the two big things I think is just trying to, to the best of our capacity, you know, quote unquote, diagnose limiting factors for the individual players. And then also recognize that they have a vested interest in their development as well, and that their experiences shouldn't be completely overlooked just to squeeze them into a, a program that I think is is most beneficial for them. I think we've, you know, seen now that uh, a lot of players will reach successful outcomes using different methods. And, you know, I have a lot of colleagues that I have a tremendous amount of respect for, um, you know, within SCAF and outside of it that approach things a little bit differently than I do. So, you know, I, I think it's keeping the big picture in mind as far as what are we hoping to get out of the training process and, you know, where are opportunities where we can maybe improve the athletes buy-in by giving them a little bit more of a voice in the process. Yeah. I, I heard a lot there and just to summarize what, what I heard principles and values, we have them as performance coaches, but our players have the principles and values that guide them as well. And so do our fellow coaches who we work with. And it's part of a system uh, that we're a part of. Uh, communication is a huge part of that. Just getting to know the players and the people we work with to be able to deliver a high quality strength and conditioning experience to uh, to meet the needs of individual players. Uh, and having a strong rationale, uh, an evidence-based rationale for what we're doing so that we can explain across all of the different stakeholders, the player, the coaches, the front office, what we're doing, why we're doing it, why we think something's important, and also our ability to uh, stack that against other priorities that are within the system. I think that's one of the big challenges within professional sports, but uh, we're hearing more and more of that with NIL at the college level as well in the transfer portal. And, and I think it's interesting. It, it, it's something that coming from the professional sports background, and we often hear this with the pro sports side of things, it's uh, an area of the field that uh, everyone is benefiting from right now. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Uh Kevin, this was uh, this was awesome, man. You really dove into the testing and uh, a lot of the combine information, and we learned about SCAF uh, and just 
uh, it was awesome to hear your path and how you got to the NHL. So thanks for being with us. It was my pleasure, Eric. Thanks for having me. Hey, for our listeners, what's the best way to reach out and connect with you? Um, probably two places are easiest. I have a, a website. It's just my name. So kevinneeld.com. It's K-E-V-I-N-N-E-E-L-D. Um, and then also I'm, I'm on Instagram and try to, as much as my schedule uh, at work and my family life allows, I try to uh, put up some content and maintain a presence there. And my handle there is just at Kevin Neeld. So pretty easy to find. Um, people can reach out through either medium and I do my best to uh, to get back to people as soon as I can. So um, you know, if anybody has questions or just wants to touch base, I look forward to hearing from you. Awesome. That was Kevin Neal, head performance coach for the Boston Bruins in the NHL. Uh, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate all of our listeners and a special thanks to Sorenax Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. Hi coaches. This is Mike Carroll, longtime college strength and conditioning coach, now working on the tactical side of the profession. The NSCA Coaching Podcast brings highlights from all areas of our growing field to help you navigate your coaching path. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.